UN International Law Commission since the year 2017. He was the chairperson of the drafting committee at the 69th session of the International Law Commission. He proposed the topic evidence before international courts and tribunals, which was added to the long-term program of work of the International Law Commission in the year 2017. His areas of expertise includes dispute resolution, boundary disputes, law of the sea, international investment law, and international trade law. He is an advocate at Supreme Court of India. He, is, uh, he has also taught courses in international law at the Indian Law Institute, New Delhi. During the year 2017, he was a practitioner in residence at the Berlin post Camp Research Group International Rule of Law, Rise or Decline, based at the Hamburg University, Berlin. He was also a member of the study group constituted by the Law Commission of India in 2015 draft Indian model bill at a, uh, and a member of Fifth Haryana State Finance Commission constituted under Article 243 of the Indian Constitution. So before moving towards the session, I would like to address that any questions directed to Dr. Anirudh Rajput can be posted in the chat box and shall be taken in the end. Furthermore, audience is requested to keep their mics off during the session. Over to you, sir. Okay. Good. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, first, for that introduction, then, uh, thank you very much to Think India for uh, invitation. And above all, thank you very much for uh, the alacrity with which every term they find me new, very hardworking and intelligent research assistants. And my work nowadays is uh, impossible without the contribution that these very intelligent, hardworking and dedicated uh, interns do for me. And I must also add, which is unfortunately a lacking quality amongst all international lawyers and uh, which is the most uh, shocking part when it comes to people from India because that's what is the basic thing which is expected from all of us and that is humility. And I have noticed that the research assistants are extremely humble because only with humility can we learn, can we grow and very aptly summarized in the Sanskrit phase Vidya Vinayena Shobhate. I doubt if I myself qualify for these uh, these humilities, but uh, I'm sure that because the students have this humility, they have a very bright future, much brighter than what I have. Firstly, therefore, many thanks to Think India for all the help they provide me and then for organizing this event, which is an opportunity for me to express some of my views and also an opportunity to, to listen to what, uh, what or in a sense for you all to raise some queries and, and for me to respond to some of them. I must also add that towards the preparation of today's talk, I was greatly assisted by my assistants in the past who not for this talk, but broadly helped me on different aspects of trade law or for my prior presentations. But particularly for this talk, I'm intensely grateful for uh, uh, Ayushi Singh who worked extremely hard and uh, after looking at the at, at the excellent research that she prepared, I wish uh, she was invited to speak in my place. 
so i hope uh, since you've invited me i i do manage to say some interesting things apart from from the extensive and and a very good research that she did for me in relation to this topic now the future of the wto astrology by itself is a topic which evokes very divided feelings and when one is about to predict the future of something one is doing no more than a kind of an astrological prediction. The only difference being in astrology, you look at the stars. As an international lawyer, you try to look at events. You try to look at the history. Of course, history carries a lot of importance. History lets you know how things happened in the past. But the problem with the history is that the history happens in a certain context and the context of the future might not be the same. Despite these differences and fundamental problems, nevertheless, it is possible to look at some of the past events to understand where we stand and what might be there in the future. Do and that is the brief methodology I would like to use in order to see, to analyze what might be there for the future of the WTO. Now, as we all know, normally people go to seek the opinion of an astrologer, that is try to look into the future whenever there is a crisis. If there is no crisis, then there are very few reasons for somebody to go and seek opinion and views about what might happen in the future. The fact is evident, it is in public domain. And since most of you students are well informed, I'm quite sure you all know about what are those problems that the WTO is grappling with at the moment. That is, what are those things which constitute the basis of the problems that it faces? Apart from the facts, I look at it from a certain framework and based on what lessons one can draw based on, on the situations. And on that assumptions, I'm going to make some, some analysis of the current situation and what might be there for the future. Now, when we speak of the crisis at the WTO, which is pretty well known, there are two kinds of crises that if one looks at it from a, from a strictly technical point of view or a strictly loyally point of view. First is the inability of the WTO to move forward. And secondly, inability of the WTO to conserve whatever it has already achieved. Now let me elaborate on what I mean by failure to achieve further and inability to conserve whatever it has achieved. Now, what I mean by failure to, to go forward is that WTO treaties are a set of evolving documents. GATT, for example, GATT was simply a set of, a, a set of treaties, commitments, where states undertook certain commitments in terms of what would be uh, the tariff restrictions, allowed restrictions, then not to have any restrictions, and on which products not to have restrictions. 
And thereafter, they found it appropriate, necessary that they keep meeting after every certain period of time and try to enter into more and more negotiations. And we do have different rounds of negotiations which went on thereafter. And the final negotiation, which resulted into creation of the WTO, is the Marrakesh Agreement. That was where uh, we have the current text of the WTO agreement, the multilateral agreement, and the plurilateral agreements. But the journey of the WTO, as one may call the legislative developments of the WTO, were not meant to stop after creation of the WTO at the Marrakesh Agreement. Because in the prior rounds, no international organization as such was created. When GATT was conceived, the idea was that there would be an international trade organization. Because of the lack of support for the United States, the international trade organization, ITO, never came into being. What remained was a set of treaties which regulated trade. It did have its own dispute resolution procedure, which was fairly ineffective because it was mostly recommendatory in nature. Most of these, what one might say, flaws or inadequacies of the regime of the CAT were sought to be addressed at the, at the, at the negotiations at Marrakesh in the Marrakesh round. And what we have is the current set of WTO agreements. Now, this set of WTO agreements of one of the major contributions is certainly that of a binding dispute resolution procedure and which is an independent dispute resolution procedure. Unlike GATT, where the decision of the dispute resolution body had to be positively approved, now there is a default approval unless there is a consensus which is against its adoption, which made sure that the dispute resolution procedure is not only functional, but effective. Now, this was how the WTO was conceived and WTO was or that's the journey where it's, it stood. But the idea was that the WTO would not just stop there and the journey would continue in the future. That continuation was in the form of further negotiations and that everybody has heard about or is probably aware of is the Doha Development Round. This round was called the Development Round with the hope that this round would provide greater participation for developing states and would be a kind of a forum where some of the concerns or kind of agreements where some of the concerns of the developing countries would be taken into account. The Doha Development Round, despite decades of efforts, moved barely by a fraction of an inch, and then it just collapsed. The fraction of an inch movement was at the Bali Agreement, where there were certain further agreements between states, but not on some critical factors. And still thereafter, it seems that nothing has moved. So Doha development round is almost de facto dead since nothing is happening and there's no possibility of anything happening further in that regard. And one of the concerns, especially voiced by India, has been that we need to provide food at, at, at a subsidized rate to our uh, our people, and that's the kind of su uh, subsidy considering the light of poverty that should not be caught into these trade agreements, which is a perfectly legitimate demand to make considering the nature of India and, and the population that India has and its development needs. 
then of course there's there's a big concern of the agricultural produce where a lot of subsidies are given by the developed countries and these developed countries are not fully willing to give away those subsidies and allow free competition with the products which come from other markets overall doha one can say has has collapsed and probably has no future anymore if doha doesn't have any future that is the doha development round doesn't have any future then in other words it means that there is no further legislation that is there is no further set of treaties which are going to happen or going to take place now one might ask well there may not be no development that's fine but what about what has already been achieved certainly the wto marrakesh agreement was a great achievement despite that being a great achievement that great achievement or the so called great achievement is now a hostage of the state which created it for for its for its own purposes and that crisis today what is known as the wto crisis is fundamentally the crisis of the appellate body of the wto now what might seem to be simply a crisis of an institution of the wto rather than the rather than the entire wto is not just limited to that institution itself it has a contiguous effect it has an effect which impacts other aspects of the wto thereby bringing on its knees the entire functioning or conceptualization of the wto just to give a brief background it was obama administration that started stalling the appointment of of members of the appellate body prior to that united states had on some occasions not given renewal of membership to its own members so that is fine it's perfectly for a state member state of the wto to decide for itself as to who it wants to put up for 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 election or for reelection and the reasoning that the united states administrations gave successively bush onwards including obama administration in not renewing the terms of their own nationals on the appellate body was that they are not protecting american interests now this is a very strange set of reasoning i call this a strange set of reasoning because dispute resolution procedures are provided or at least told to the world that these dispute resolutions are meant to remove politics and those who sit on the appellate body are expected to decide based on the law this is the understanding which all other states have and therefore when their experts sit on the on, on on the appellate body they function on that premise but united states tried to change the very premise of the appointment of its members on the appellate body by saying or rather being candid that it is making its appointment only for political purposes or expecting those who sit on the appellate body serve the interests of united states of america now it is perfectly fine and if they want to do it themselves and don't want to renominate or nominate people who they don't fit from their perspective is their choice the problem are calling members from other states and the crisis started with the reluctance of united states of america to the renewal of the term of mr chang from korea, from south korea the reasons that were given were basically that we don't accept with the reasoning and the approach that he took in fact and the united states has been quite vocal about it it lost almost 10 cases in a row 
and mostly in relation to what is called a very complicated process of the US zero, zeroing. The zeroing is a fairly complicated process, but in simple words, it's a process whereby the valuation of the anti-dumping anti duty is calculated. Now, the, the situation before uh, the appellate body was that whether it is for the discretion or it is within the exclusive discretion of the regulatory authority of the United States to decide whether and what would be the margin of that duty or such a decision is amenable to review by the appellate body. Now, anybody would probably come to a reasonable conclusion that if you have a dispute resolution procedure and there is nothing to preclude or rather there is nothing that specifically allows a self-judging provision, then a reasonable interpretation would be that the dispute resolution body has complete discretion to decide on whether the actions of a state fall within the framework of the WTO obligations or not. And in this case, whether those obligations, whether those actions fall within the purview of the anti-dumping um, agreement. What we see is after having lost the case, United States kept raising those arguments and trying to challenge the functioning of the appellate body itself and what it started calling the judicial overreach. It tried to harp upon Article 3.2 of the DSU to claim that uh, the members of the appellate body are not supposed, or even of the panel, are not supposed to create or diminish the obligations that are already contained in the WTO agreements. The actions of the appellate body members were trying to introduce new obligations outside the purview of the WTO. So all these nicely dressed up arguments were trying to say that the appellate body is not acting as per its mandate or is exceeding its, its mandate. In my view, the appellate body has been one of the most reasonable adjudicating bodies as compared to other international courts and tribunals. If we look at the decisions of investment tribunals, they have been on their own fancy. They have been pretty much deciding cases as they like without caring much for the law, which has not been the case with the appellate body of the WTO. This is also evident from the fact that several other states who have won or lost cases have not mind losing cases before the appellate body. But for the United States, it was a shocking fact almost breaking a holy grail as to how can United States of America lose a case before the appellate body, especially in relation to anti-dumping. Because anti-dumping has been used effectively as a tool to exclude a lot of products which might be otherwise competitive to American products in American markets and might create problems for them in the, in the American market. So all these smartly dressed arguments as I said, there is a legal side to it. I gave the legal side about no future progress of negotiations. But I also told you about what are the legal arguments being raised to diminish the existing structure. But behind it is the broader philosophical concern about the appellate body deciding cases against the interests of the United, of, of, of the United States. Now, having made this point, I want to pause here a bit. And now I want to rewind a bit and try to look at the very creation of the WTO, and then look at why probably is America behaving like this. The WTO 
was hailed as one of the greatest outcomes of the Washington Consensus. The Washington Consensus was the unchallenged establishment of market capitalism, the departure of communism, and in other words, establishment of American supremacy around the world. Or, or, in, or, 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 or in more broader terms, Western supremacy around the world. United States of America, hailed as the leader of the free world, that is the leader of the European country, Western countries, because although most of them fall in Europe, Australia, New Zealand also broadly fall in the same group, and they identify often themselves uh, or align themselves with the, with, with, the, with the Western European countries, although now they're trying to move more towards Asia, looking at the importance of Asia. But overall, that's how that block has been seen. The EU, uh, the, some, some of, the, some of the, the nations having Western traditions in Asia all the, and all other Western countries and United States with the United States as its leader. The creation of the WTO was actually hailed as success of that, that hegemonic project. And in that project, it was just about the time when uh, the Berlin Wall fell down, the Soviet Russia collapsed, and the sole surviving superpower in the world was the United States of America. It was in a position to push through its agenda the way it wanted. And that was the time when United States of America was exporter, was one of the net exporter. It was still, the, it, it, even like today, it was still the largest economy in the world. It was dominating the world export. When it was trying to bring in these treaties, whole objective through these treaties was to force the rest of the world to remove the obstructions in the form of non-trade barriers, of uh, non-tariff barriers, to remove these barriers so that it can have a more smooth and smooth and, and seamless export to these countries and it can make more profits. It was pretty simple than that, as that. Although in retrospect of then, they might want to, to project themselves as doing something great to the world. And I'm going to come to some of those theoretical arguments a little later. But the fact of the matter is they were acting exclusively in their own interests, interests of America, interests of the European countries. At that stage, China was out of the WTO, Russia was out of the WTO. So they had managed to exclude the so-called competitors, but in any event at that time, China or Russia were not even in the zone of competition as they are in today's time, and even India. So if we look at India's position at the time of the creation of the WTO, in along with several WTO uh, developing countries, tried to consistently resist the efforts of the United States to the extent that India was almost seen as the only mischief monger or the only problem creator in the process. Ultimately, India at that stage did not have enough political, political capital, did not have enough stature at his, at, as it has, has today, and had to simply follow and go along as everybody else was going along. The devastating effect of the WTO in certain developed countries cannot be denied. So what was suitable for America, and America did find it quite, quite enjoyable, it did enjoy the ride for a long time. Suddenly the journey turned sour for America. The reasons for its turning sour is a lot of the developing countries who were not expected to do well suddenly started doing well. And the major reason is China. And China is one of those countries 
who does not adhere market capitalist capitalism principles doesn't follow a free market it has its own so quote unquote independent corporations which are which pretend to be independent but which have strong governmental links and it pretends to be a free market economy whereas actually it is not and that's also something which creates more fundamental concerns as to if somebody is into the system and not following the rules of the game in good faith or rather seen to be not following the rules of the game in good faith and in this situation the united states of america consistently lost 10 cases on anti uh, on anti dumping and related issues it did find it necessary to stop the process to stall the process and it started stalling it by destroying the institution itself some people might say that it is the fancy of the current United States administration to destroy it, that would be absolutely wrong to say because prior administrations have also vociferously done it to protect American interests. In fact, Obama administration was the first to stop to, or rather to reject the renewal of Mr. Chang from, from South Korea. And if we look at, uh, go into the history, we'll find several examples of protectionistic measures. And we also see that uh, they're trying to to use this system more towards their more self-interest. Now, this is more about a bit of the problems and the politics behind it. But then, what? where does it stand? Where does the WTO stand? And what are the legal ways in which the WTO is trying to resolve this crisis? The leader in this, this problem-solving business, problem-solving situation is the EU. Of course, several states have made proposals. India also supported some of these proposals, but EU is the one which has been pushing actively to find a resolution to the way to, these, uh, to this crisis. One solution that has been suggested by few, which was that why don't we get, a, get rid of the appellate, appellate body system itself? So the decision of the panel would be binding by itself. The other proposal, which has now gained currency and there's a there's an agreement between 18 states of which india is not a part and this uh, agreement which is of a which one could say of a much much smaller size only between 18 states provides that uh, resort to to article 25 procedure of the dsu so article 25 provides for arbitration proceedings which would be outside the framework and these 18 states have gotten together have have made a panel of 10 arbitrators and are now encouraging through interlinked agreements between them to make sure that based on uh, after there's a, there's a report of the panel the appeal would go to that uh, that arbitral tribunal which is going to ultimately adjudicate on those on those disputes all and substitute the appellate body this would be a, a, a set of arbitrators and and the states do undertake by entering or at least those states who have entered into that agreement undertake to abide by this procedure that is to go for the appeal procedure and comply with it through arbitration eu has even proposed and and that's also a part of the agreement of the possibility of countermeasures being adopted if uh, a certain state is not willing to go for appeal so there's also a due amount of coercion uh, one might say legal coercion if a state is unwilling to go follow the appeal procedure. But if you look at the total membership of the WTO, we see only 18 member states doing this. 
And these 18 member states are those who have interest in export, which is basically the EU and China, which are the two major players. Of course, smaller countries like uh, Mexico, Brazil, which are also growing economies, they also have an interest in conserving the WTO. They're also a part of the system. But United States is out of it. India has expressed its skepticism about the regime. According to India, the, the system of the appellate body was, was an integral part of the WTO system, and that should not be interfered with. So it is, in a sense, insisting on the system that existed in the past and wants to go back to it. But will this crisis be resolved? The problem of this crisis being resolved is quite minimal. It's doubtful whether the appellate body will ever come back to its original form and would ever be functional as it was in the past. For obvious reasons, because the interests of United States have drastically changed and it's not in its own interest to allow the WTO to function as it functioned in the past. Now, what about India? It all depends on to whom India is exporting. And at the moment, uh, India is not such a such a healthy exporter. It's of course a growing economy, but it's not as healthy an exporter as say China. If it was a healthy exporter, if it had an interest in conserving the system, it could have probably participated more vigorously. But the fact that India is sitting on the fence and looking at this whole situation as it unfolds tends to represent uh, its approach towards the whole situation as of somebody who is still skeptical and, and probably is weighing and balancing, but is fully aware of what it wants to do rather more than that, what it does not want to do. If the appellate body is going to be functional, then the treaties of the WTO would simply remain and the compliance with those provisions would be voluntary. While there are 18 states who have gone in one direction, it is not clear if others would want to join that as well. Even if others join, if the number of those who join is much smaller, then it doesn't achieve the very purpose of having a multilateral trading system. The other challenge which WTO will continue to face in the future is the possibility of multilateral negotiations on trade issues. One of the reasons for conducting broad ranging negotiations at the multilateral level was that the interests of states in a larger negotiating group are much diverse. It is far more difficult to try to find solutions or compromises when there are several stakeholders trying to pull the negotiations in different directions. When this is the case, one good way to negotiate is to try to have as many issues as possible at the same time. Once there are several issues at the same time, then the then the interest, then the diversity of interests can be spread across those issues. And some of the issues could be compromised and some of the issues which are very controversial could be left behind. It, the idea therefore at a multilateral negotiation which played out quite successfully in, in relation to the WTO was to have several avenues and then try to see where, because there is there are more options, so more possibilities of give and take between the member states and accordingly to find an agreement based on which there can be some consensus on some agreements. Now the situation is that some of some have started viewing that having too many options is not really functioning. They're trying to narrow down the options. 
the narrowing down of options is actually counterproductive because on everything there are some problems or the other from the other side. So we have we are a situation where the priorities of different parts of the world are so irreconcilable that they simply can't be put together at one place or at one level. At the time of the Marrakesh Agreement in 1995, US was a superpower. It still had hegemonic powers. It could push its way through and try to get a consensus and get things moving. We are in a multipolar, several poles of power where everybody wants to make sure that it doesn't lose to somebody else who's more powerful than it. This is, in a sense, a good situation, in a sense. It shows that politically we are in a more in a situation where more states have a say. We are in a more democratic setup. But if any, we are in, a, in, in that kind of a setup, in a, in, a, in a more democratic international legal setup, then it also creates problems about taking more time and difficulties of multilateralism. Despite the failures of multilateralism, what we do see is there are a lot of free trade agreements which are being negotiated. Now, free trade agreements give the flexibility of the choice of a party, choice of products, and far more ease of negotiations as compared to multilateral negotiations. We are therefore seeing a massive upward trend in the number of free trade agreements which are being negotiated between states. And this upward trend is bound to continue. And as it starts to continue, as it continues to go upwards, the inevitable consequence would be the reduction of multilateral trade system, reduction of multilateral uh, system institution like the WTO. And it seems that the WTO now has a, has a real bleak future. And there are real questions about whether the WTO survives. Even if it survives, it will survive to the extent of a small number of, of, of players without two major players such as India and United States if they decide to stay out of it. Having said that, I think that it's also the time to pause and reflect about some of the fundamental norms which have driven the multilateral international trading system. The first point that needs to be kept in mind is about the rule-based system. There has to be a rule-based system, there can be no doubt. But the rule-based system has to be created on an equal footing. If the rule-based system is simply pushed through by the power of a, by, of a hegemon, it is obvious that such a system would not sustain for very long. The cracks in the WTO very well represent this. But if there are more FTAs, if there is greater interaction between, sta between states on a bilateral level or on a regional level, and once and states do move towards a rule-based system, there is still scope or there's still functionality of the trading system. So if we look at rule-based system, we do see that the states have not gone away from the rule-based system. It is just that they don't like the rule-based system at the WTO and they are finding other avenues for a rule-based system. So it would be wrong to read this situation to mean that international law does not have any role or international law does not have any future. I know there's often an instinct amongst many people simply to disregard or to discount international law. That would be absolutely incorrect. The fact that there are more free trade agreements, the fact that there are more treaties entered into itself shows that states want a rule-based system. 
Now, the difference between a rule-based system and a non-rule-based system is that once states have entered into a treaty or agreed to a rule-based system, they do agree that the role of politics is removed in that domain where there are a set of rules. Such a rule-based system provides consistency, predictability, and it provides an equitable basis for all the participants to deal with each other. Therefore, a rule-based system is must, whether at the WTO or at the outside. The second issue is in relation to some of the fundamentals which were being, which were being propagated at the time of the creation of the WTO. The most important idea was free trade equal to prosperity. There was some sort of a calculation which was floating all over the world saying free trade equal to prosperity. But nobody really substantiated the claim. Some economists did try to speak about how free trade is going to improve the uh, going to improve development all around the world. Well, but the question is, is there a direct link? Direct link? Is there a causal link? Economists can often come up with mutually contradictory conclusions. So, uh, one cannot probably say for sure that free trade will definitely result into economic growth. And when we speak of free trade, we need to also understand in which context the free trade is going to function. The fact that states want to have regional arrangements rather than a multilateral trading arrangement means they, are, they do see the potential of free trade, but they do not see the potential of, of free trade being used as a propaganda tool for thrusting regulations on the world. WTO was at that time nothing else than using the theoretical argument of free trade, trying to say just by free trade things are going to change and these are the set of rules which you have to accept. So free trade was a front which was used to push through the US agenda or the Western European agenda, which is now, 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 now clearly faltering in the current times. So free trade has to be thought in the context of when it can result into prosperity and when it cannot. The third idea, which now to me often sounds very, sounds very archaic and so very superficial, is that of the David Ricardo's concept of the comparative cost analysis. So according to this comparative cost analysis, whoever is better at producing something should produce that and others should not produce that. This so-called competitive behavior has destroyed several economies, especially several economies in Africa and some of them in Asia as well. But these economies have learned from the lesson of themselves and now have started impacting the Western economies. And because the Western economies are getting impacted, now the Western economies are saying go local. So we do see that till now they use the theory of comparative cost analysis. Now they're saying, no, the theory of comparative cost analysis is not, is not so important. Let's go local. Local is important. Local people need to be supported. So rather than trying to look at this debate as free trade versus protectionist protectionism, the debate needs to be looked at in a more nuanced manner. It has to be looked at as to where do national interests lie and how do those national interests function. There is, a, there is a tendency to presume that the moment word national interest is there's something bad about it. Well, we can't forget when we are speaking of national interest, we are speaking about the democratic societies, societies where there are multiple stakeholders. You're talking about employment, jobs of people who live within that country. We simply can't sacrifice the economic demands, requirements of the people who stay within that country 
just for the sake of a nice theoretical idea which is going to bring prosperity in only the western world and not in the rest of the world it is therefore the time to ask some fundamental questions to try to appreciate understand reanalyze those concepts and see how they function in the modern context those concepts which form a part of propaganda have to be gotten rid of but those concepts which can constructively contribute need to be promoted this is the time when there is a there is a there's a paradigm shift in the international relations there's a paradigm shift in priorities of states and as this shift takes form as this shift is going to develop further it is very important that states individually understand what their situation is where they stand and try to develop norms which go in in, in the direction they desire the reason for giving Western Europe is most of what they have been doing was projecting their interests. So the rule makers and the rest of the world was rule takers. To a certain extent, EU continues to be the rule maker at least with those states who are going along with it. It is high time now, rest of the powerhouses of the world, and when I mean rest of the powerhouses of the world means countries like India and China. China is already doing it. China is already forming its own rules. It's very active uh, at, with, with the EU in formulation of, of the rules, especially the alternate uh, multi-party uh, alternate uh, uh, mechanism for arbitration. But India is yet to get to a position where it has its own norms and itself becomes comes in the form of a rule maker. To come to that form, it's not the fault of an institution or the government. It's a systemic fault of everybody who's involved in trade law from India. We have not produced enough number of trade lawyers. We have not produced enough number of enough amount of thinking about some of these fundamental issues. This is probably a time. In China, this has happened almost 30 years back. It has been going on for the for last 30 years, but the, considering the kind of the governments they have, it's very easy for them to implement things. But India, it's a democracy which needs to be respected. Despite the problems and challenges, it is necessary to think about what is in, in the interest of the country as such, because it's, it's a larger population. And that also needs to be fed and satisfied. Having, while doing that, the rules that are to be formed, the rules that are to be formed have to represent these aspirations. At negotiations, you have to give some, some field, you have to make some compromises, you have to give away some areas. That one has to do, that can't be, that can't be avoided. But once you enter into a treaty, that, that is something you are bound with and you have to comply with it. So the whole discussion of national interest politics ends the moment a treaty comes into force. It is therefore important at the stage Till the stage of entering into a treaty, whatever is the scope for politics thinking, original thinking that needs to be done. But once we have a treaty, then there is an obligation to comply with it. Some states decide not to comply with it. They think they can get away with it, but it has a huge cost as well in terms of their standing internationally and their functioning. India as a country has consistently been a state which adheres to the rule of law. And it has whatever prestige it has earned today, one of the important reasons is because it has adhered to principles of rule of law. Accordingly, in the multi, multi, multilateral trading system, where we speak of the future of, of, of the trading system, either in a more fractured form, multilateral looks quite uh, difficult now, 
But whatever form it takes, it would be important that India is an active participant. And to be that active participant, it has active participation from Indians. There are far more scholars, far more researchers working on issues of trade, not just limited to the WTO, but to free trade agreement. There are several aspects of trade, digital trade services. There's a whole panoply on which uh, individuals can work on. And that's how, as I say, we are now at a, at a situation that where India could take the leading role of make, being a rule maker, but that role can be taken by you all. So I think that's where I would stop and uh, I should now take questions and answers. Thank you so much, sir, for the enlightening session. Now we believe we have a better overview of the current crisis in World Trade Organization. Now our audience has some questions. A first question is from Mohit. Would it be feasible to substitute the appeals to the appellate body under Article 25 of the DSU with arbitration, especially for trade remedies? The most pressing concern for the US from AB decisions, thus preventing them from joining consensus in the AB process. Well, the US is not going to join any consensus because it's not in its interest. So it is just how effective these 18 states are who are running this mechanism of, of arbitration and how they approach other states and get their support. But beyond that, it's doubtful if, if it can go much further. Of course, there are Chinese interests at the moment in, in pushing it, but we don't know how what's going to happen in the, in the European Union because European Union itself is not a homogeneous and perfectly happy home. Um, Germany has, uh, other states have a much larger trade deficit with Germany. Germany is the only country who's, uh, who's having trade excesses. So if that house is going to falter, then the proponent of this very And we're not in normal times. We still haven't spoken about what is going to be. But uh, the prospects of, of the appeal mechanism seem to be bleak as long as India and United States are out of the system, which they are at the moment. Right. The next question is from Parina. Uh, does India not agree with the US on the allegations of creating precedents? India has itself been a victim of it. Should India then not stand with the US now? Well, there is no rule of precedence in international law, but if a certain decision has been carefully drafted and carefully adopted, then there is every reason why it would be followed in later decisions as a part of consistency. If states problem with it, they can very well try to, to pass a resolution at the WTO, at, at the DSU and say, we don't agree with this and our interpretation of the treaty is different and DSU does provide for it. But that doesn't mean you start challenging the institution itself. In my personal view, I do not think that the, w, that the appellate body has overstepped or gone beyond its mandate. It has been quite reasonable. Of course, there are always reasons to be unhappy with one or two decisions here and there. In terms of India losing the cases, I think it would be unfortunate simply to start challenging because India has lost a case. One also needs to see what arguments India made. Did India make full effort to achieve its goal? If it failed in its effort, then it may not be proper to blame that fault on the, on, on the appellate body. So I would not see it would be proper for India to join. 
takes in challenging the appellate body because India has had its own members as well on the appellate body. In fact, the last outgoing chairperson was an Indian. Having said that, I think India should and would adhere hopefully to the rule-based system and by which I mean to the to the system of the of the appellate body and not object to the principle of decisions being followed, although it's not strictly steady, but one can loosely call it the practice of following its own decisions. Next question is from Naman. Does the collapse, uh, sorry, does the collapse of World Trade Organization pose a threat to viability of other international intergovernmental organization like UN itself? Well, because of COVID, we don't know who all is going to come into into the into the engulf of crisis. The crisis is going to be long-standing, and there is uh, a fatigue towards bilateralism. States, the major states, who until now has been have been contributing money, resources, support to these international organizations, are getting tired of doing that. And if they get tired of doing that, if the money is not flowing in, we might have the building of the United Nations, but the UN is unfunctional if nobody is willing to sponsor it. Today, a large part of the budget comes from the United States. And if the US says, if China wants to be a superpower, China might as well contribute. But China is reluctant to contribute. It says United States should pay and then we'll have a free ride on it, which can't function. And as I said, uh, the interests of the Western countries in using these institutions to perpetuate their hegemony have disappeared. So they don't have any interest anymore in ensuring these institutions survive and their interests are protected or, or propagated. So other institutions might also have difficult times uh, in, the, in, in the near future. Next question is from Vishakha. The actions of US has shown that W trade uh, World Trade Organization works as per the will of its member. So doesn't the action of US set a bad precedent for other members and anyways renders the WTO insufficient to handle such crisis? Any member can anytime make the system dysfunctional under the consensus system. The functioning of the WTO does not prove that was amenable to American control. So your first assumption of your question with due respect is absolutely wrong. The very fact that America is angry with the WTO means that it never got what it wanted, which means despite the opposition of the superpower which created it, the appellate body has functioned to the satisfaction of everybody else, rest of the members. So I don't think uh, the WTO appellate body should receive any unnecessary criticism for what it doesn't deserve. But uh, United States deserves a share of the criticism, which it should take. And one of the problems of US has been it just doesn't want to lose a case and it can't take it happily. Uh, same with most of the superpowers. Look at uh, China in the South China Sea arbitration. They are unhappy. Look at United States uh, military, military uh, activities in the Nicaragua case or uh, the investment arbitration regime is, was intact because U.S. has never lost a case. All other states have lost several cases. If U.S. had lost a case, I'm very sure U.S. would have finished that system as well. So when these systems are created, they were created for a purpose. It was, And I think it's important for us to understand what that purpose was. And while those institutions were being created, we should have made efforts. But maybe in the future, we would be more careful.
the next question is from Divya. Will MPIA be able to furnish an institution as good as WTO DSP and will it not make WTO DSP irrelevant if it becomes as successful and thus compromise the multilateral system? Well, it has only 18 people today. If say it gets to 100, then maybe we can ask that question, but uh, it's far from it. And even if it gets 100 people, but if it has major players like India and US out of it, then uh, it becomes like a no different than a, than another regional free trade agreement body. So we can't uh, put too much uh, bet on the success of this mechanism. The next question is from Swaroop. Uh, she's stating that you mentioned that EU wanting uh, EU uh, that you talked about EU wanting to toss out the appellate body itself. So what implications would such a move will have on India? I don't think they want to toss out the appellate body. They're trying to provide an alternative mechanism till the appellate body becomes functional. And they do realize that the appellate body is not going to become functional. So they are, in a sense, not tossing it out, but trying to find a replacement and put that replacement in place. India itself seemed to be very happy with the decisions of the appellate body. I don't think there was any error on the part of the appellate body. The error was more on India's part rather than the part of the appellate body. But it has, but it has lost the case. That's a fact of the matter. Now, it's there. At the end of the day, lost the case and interest and and. As a, as a policy, I think they are bound to have some amount of skepticism towards the institution, which I don't think is, is the appropriate way to go about. They should be more vigilant about the institution and, and see how, how it might help their overall goals of promoting their exports. But it seems that because India is not in, a pos in an influential position to be an exporting powerhouse yet, so it may not want to go in and burn its hands. So it's therefore sitting on the fence and looking at what's unfolding. And it all depends on how many people ultimately join uh, this mechanism under Article 25, and it all depends on its success. But India might be still reluctant to join even in the future. That's, uh, that's a strong possibility. Next question is from Ajay. China recently said India's recent Chinese app ban goes against WTO rules. How can India deal with this or counter this if the need arises? Well, Article 20, 21 of, of the GATT, security concerns. So, yeah. uh, Next question is from Lavanya. Do you think the era of trade regulations have come to an end? Or should we expect that the trade regulations will now be coming from some other institutions other th rather than the WTO? I think I did elaborate this in my in my speech where I said the future is regional trade agreements. Look at dispute resolution clauses there. That's where things are. Look, regulation of international trade is never going to disappear. It existed before the WTO. It will exist after the WTO. Prior to the WTO, there were the friendship, commerce, and navigation treaties, which were much broader. So this area will never dry, die and, and never be dry. As long as states are exporting, there is trade and trade would always remain. And so would uh, these instruments and regulation of international trade. 
next question is from Swanand. Are there any laws regarding against the country for dumping their goods in another one? If yes, then does it restrict the globalization? It doesn't restrict global globalization. I think there's a, those who are informed in trade law know there's the anti-dumping uh, agreement, which is a part of the WTO, from which most of these disputes arose. And that's what America is angry with, the interpretation of Article 17, sub-Article 6 of the anti-dumping agreement. So there's this, uh, the regime, of course, there's also an element of subsidies and countervailing measures agreement. To a certain extent, it would be the agreement on agriculture, wherever subsidies relate to agriculture are there. And then full-fledged issues of dumping would be regulated under the anti-dumping agreement. So that's there's an agreement there. And in fact, the dumping anti-dumping agreement has a legacy. It has came from the uh, from the GATT times of the subsequent rounds that uh, that went thereafter. I think it was a big issue which was discussed at the Tokyo rounds. I may be wrong and subject to correction, but if my memory serves me well, that was the time when it was discussed. So anti-dumping has been an important part of it. I don't think you can connect it all to globalization because globalization is not a legal concept. It's a theory. Anything and everything can be globalization and anything and everything can be anti-globalization. Next question is from Varsha. Uh, global economy trade is down due to COVID-19. What will be the role of WTO to revive economy? Well, the WTO has to be worried about reviving itself. So if it revives itself, then it will think of reviving the world. And anyways, it's not a part of WTO to revive world trade. There are other bodies that do that. You know, for example, the IMF, World Bank, uh, they're more active for even G20 and that kind of forums, which is mostly political. Uh, next question is from Swanand. Recently, India didn't join RCEP. Was it a was the decision? Government gave its own reasons, and I don't have the data, so I would trust the data. According to them, uh, the problem is that uh, uh, if they do join RCEP, China would be pushing products on India. Enter into a match where yeah, everybody is going to score something, and you don't even get to that. You just don't play the game as simple as that. You have to be stupid to go and get yourself smashed. So, so to, from that view, it's it's a wise decision. If we can't compete with China, which we can't at the moment, because I told you it's the governmental system, the way they function. We have a democracy. We are we don't like to be disciplined by anybody, not even by our parents. Forget the government. In China, it's completely different. So the culture is different. There's no way we could have competed with the Chinese products. So legitimate reasons in my view for uh, for India not to join RCEP and it was very good that it didn't fall victim to the propaganda of free trade because China is now talking of free trade, China is now talking of intellectual property rights whereas in the past it has basically violated both of them all the time. So now when they serve its own interest it's using these theoretical constructs for its own interest. So we have to be careful of distinguishing propaganda from reality. And if and it's a it's a welcome move if the government is is uh, not just able to also able to stand by which might be perceived as tough decisions for which it might be internationally criticized. Ultimately, every state has to take care of its and it can't be that for the sake of Chinese growth, 
uh, Indian businessmen should be out of business. I don't think any government would or should get into any such exercise. The last question is from Vikram. As you pointed out that India is energized as a rule maker, how is this seen in relation to India's prospect of having permanent seat in uh, United Nations Security Council? Well, that is an issue which is beyond the WTO, but that's an issue which Indians in particular have to think more seriously rather than the Indian government. Because uh, you have to prepare power to become a member of the Security Council. India ticks all the boxes. But how much influence have Indians made all over the world? That's a question that needs to be asked. And not just all over the world, but within India. And uh, in my view, I think the government has done a sterling job. If we look at uh, the elections for the International Court of Justice at the United Nations, where Indian candidate got elected against UK candidate, which was unprecedented, never heard of. Nobody has ever managed to forget defeating, even challenge a sitting a permanent, or just sorry, not just a sitting member, but a permanent member of the United Nations. India has managed to dislodge, not just challenge, but even this dislodge, which means that as a public institution, the government has the powers, it has the wherewithal, but uh, it can't function unless the whole country stands behind it. And what I mean by that is in terms of its functioning, its output, its intellectual output, its industrial output, its social cultural output, it's uh, it's people to people diplomatic output. It also depends on how many Indian students go to other countries apart from UK and, and US for studies. And these might seem as very simple and small things, but all these things do add up towards creation of the reputation of a country and then towards uh, the ultimate goal. It would be a long journey, but uh, if the UN has to survive, then it has to accept India as a permanent member of the Security Council. Uh, so now there's a notification for the audience in the chat box. The audience is requested to fill the form in order to receive the certificate. Uh, now I would like to give a formal vote of thanks on the behalf of Think India International Law Forum to Dr. Anirudh Rajput, who took out time from his busy schedule, illuminated us on the topic of World Trade Organization. Indeed, it was an illuminating experience. Thank you. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.